You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are focusing on two black women in rock music, one fictional and one a living treasure. Later, we'll talk with Mary Clayton, the legendary voice of Gimme Shelter and star of the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom. But first, we're excited to talk with author Dawnie Walton about her debut novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, which drew inspiration from many artists, including Mary Clayton. That is absolutely right, Jim. It's an extraordinary novel. It gets a lot more right about the music industry than just about any other novel I've ever read. And uh, that's why we're talking about a novel on sound opinions, something we've never done before, actually. Novel, almost. (laughs) I started off by asking Dawnie for a quick summary of what her book is about. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Jim and Greg. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here, um, considering both your long and storied careers as music journalists. Opal and Nev are an unconventional duo Uh, a Black American woman and a white Englishman who team up in the early 1970s New York City to make weird rock and roll together. And they rock into the spotlight following um, the violent fallout from a promotional concert when a rival band on their label brandishes a Confederate flag. And the impetus for the story being told is that Opal and Nev are considering reuniting for a big festival in 2016. And there's sort of renewed interest in, in their origin story. And um, the reason I told this story is pretty personal. You know, I grew up uh, a teenager in the mid 90s, really interested in uh, rock and roll music, which was a little weird at the time because I was a young black girl and I didn't often see myself reflected in the kind of music I was listening to at the time. Yeah, And so I really wanted to sort of like conjure a heroine that I would have pinned to my bedroom wall, someone who would have influenced the kind of stuff that I liked to listen to at the time. And, and that's kind of how the story came about. Well, the woman, Opal, I, I think it's really her story in many ways. And, and I definitely see, uh, perhaps reflecting the author's thoughts on, it's sort of a revisionist history of, of, of rock. Uh, and I'm reminded of uh, individuals like uh, Grace Jones or Nona Hendrix. Yes! These were the kind of women who do not fit into any box conveniently, and yet they were able to carve out these amazing careers. And how many more of them could there have been had yeah. the industry been structured in a different way without all these barriers being put up? Uh, so there must have been a moment like, okay, I want to write about this unconventional African-American woman making music at a time when that was not considered either fashionable or trendy or very profitable. So was there like a light bulb moment saying, I've got to do this? What was that like? Yeah, actually, it happened in 2013. I was watching the Talking Heads concert film Stop Making Sense. And I love David Byrne, loved watching him in that movie. Uh, He's at center stage. He's in his boxy gray suit doing his weird David Byrne dancing and the camera pans over and you see his backup singers whose names I later learned were Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt. And they were so energetic. They just matched his energy. They were incredible. 
um, with their micro braids and red lipstick and their short sets and they're just sort of dancing and singing and I could not take my eyes off of them. And I felt an urge to literally like put my hand in the screen and move one to center stage with David Byrne and just watch them together for the entirety of the concert. And so that was sort of the thing that launched a series of what if questions, you know, what if there were a duo like this? Um, and initially, you know, when I was talking to friends about this crazy idea I had, you know, I said, you know, imagine if David Bowie and Grace Jones made music together, made proto-punk music together in this particular era of New York City. And then as I started sort of writing into the characters and like, you know, other elements of other people I love and thought about uh, started creeping in. So, of course, Nona Hendrix, as you mentioned, but also Betty Davis uh, is an amazing figure. Yeah. It ain't nothing but some music. It ain't nothing but some fun. The sort of politics of Nina Simone there's a lot of different artists kind of all wrapped up. Well, there's a sly reference at one point to uh, X-Ray Specs, of course, yes. fronted by uh, an African... Polystyrene. Uh, polystyrene. Yes. And then, uh, you know, I was thinking, and it's not the genre, because Opal is proto-punk, 100%. But I was thinking, there's a lot of Shaka Khan, Greg, yeah. in Opal, don't you think? I mean, yeah. Shaka famously kicked out of her high school choir class for being the troublemaker. <laughs> and uh, mom was a Black Panther. You know, yeah, and I love that people kind of see little bits and pieces of of um, artists that they recognize in these figures. Well, Donnie, yeah. that is because you are first and foremost a journalist, which in I think most writing circles, uh, creative writing, uh, would be considered an insult. But I mean it as the highest compliment. <laughs> I mean, these people are living in a world that you bring to life. Um, you know, the fact that there's the obnoxious uh, the, one of the two guys who runs the record company is named <laughs> Howie. Greg, how many? <laughs> people have we met in the industry <laughs> named Howie, who is that guy? I gotta, I gotta tell you, Donnie, that guy lived on the page for me. Um, we have met that guy. And in fact, I thought this guy may have been modeled on some actual Howies, oh, you know? Wow. Uh, like I'm thinking of somebody like Howie Klein. People like that. He was great fun to write. And I, you know, my favorite part of writing this book were the moments where I was laughing out loud at the things that, you know, my characters were saying. And Howie was definitely a character that made me groan and roll my eyes, but also very often laugh. So you know the music, you love the music, but also you um, are really playing in a dare I say, I am in the English and Creative Writing Department at Columbia. There's a kind of postmodern structure to this book. It is part oral history. It is part like 33 and a third or, uh, you know, great rock biography where uh, we have a stand-in music journalist coming and giving some context. And then it's part just insanity uh, in a good way. I'm, I'm thinking about two-thirds of the way through the book where we have people uh, like Questlove and Janelle Monet and Tom Morello and Henry Rollins commenting on the great Opal, mostly Opal, a little bit of shout out to Nev, right, the yeah. British guy on guitar, you know, and, and Donnie, you get their voices 100% right. I mean, we've talked to Questlove and Henry and Morello and Janelle, and that's what they sound like. Oh, that's amazing. You know, I did, I, I watched a ton of YouTube, you know, interviews while writing this and sort of thinking about the 
the things that make different celebrities so unique and, and what perspective they would have on this on this duo. Yeah, and then there's a Dick Cavett interview, you know, and uh, Jane Fonda at the end of the couch pipes up. Opal is someone who should have existed. And like I said, I kept forgetting that she didn't because I kept wanting to go listen to her record. Oh, that's an amazing compliment. Thank you. You spent a lot of time as a journalist and editor uh, working for some great, great publications, Entertainment Weekly, Essence. Is that an ear that is an asset to bring to fiction that you know how to capture dialogue when it's journalism? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You know, for many years, I, I worked for Entertainment Weekly, and we did a lot of different oral histories. Um, and the thing that always struck me about them was the interplay of voices and the ways that memories kind of complemented each other sometimes, but also clashed. So I was looking for that. Um, I also... I did pay attention to a lot of the rhythm of the voices and the sort of quirks. And my goal was for a reader to be able to sort of open the page and just put their finger on, you know, a passage and know who was talking. So um, I got to learn, you know, very quickly, like the kinds of language that different characters would use. And, you know, when I worked for Life.com, um, I interviewed everyone from Sophia Loren to, you know, um, the actor Jeffrey Wright. And you really understand like the different sort of generational ticks and, and the way that people tell stories is very different depending on a lot of different factors. So it definitely was an asset. I forgot to say that. Uh, the bulk of the book is an oral history. You know, and I actually hate oral histories. I'm always, as a journalist, uh, especially familiar with that punk world, there's so much context that's missing. But but in, in fact, there's something magical about this book because we get all the context and you're using different ways, uh, you know, setting up uh, many of the chapters with the journalist coming in and then and then snapshot to the Cavett show or snapshot to other people. I think it's better than most. Right, Greg, Greg, don't oral histories kind of bug you? It seems well, cheap. Well, you know, the context is the key. I mean, I, I think the voice of the journalist whose voice keeps popping in and out among the smattering of quotes is really critical. Because, as you said, Donnie, everybody has their own version of the That's truth. Right. I mean, you can be in a room with five people, and they're going to all have their self-serving individual versions of what happened in that room. And there's really no sense of, there is no common truth that we can all agree on. That's why you need that, uh, that voice of the journalist coming in there and saying, okay, I'm going to sort out the fact from the fiction here and get to the bottom of things someone to wrangle all those different stories and pick out what's important and what hasn't been said in addition to, you know, what what legends are being put forth, I think, yeah. So as a journalist yourself, Donnie, I'm sure that you ran into those kind of situations, right, where you had to sort of decide how you're going to handle it when two people, like the two protagonists in the book, clearly don't see eye to eye in a lot of things like this is the way it happened and that's a central conflict in the book in a lot of ways so you must have seen that happen in your real life job right well you know i actually like i mostly did editing work so it was not so much wrangling with two opposing figures in the moment, but kind of seeing how the the writer is able to sort of square those voices and sort of asking questions and making sure that the story itself is sort of getting a, a real truth across. So it was more like that as opposed to having to deal with that directly. 
Well, let's um, talk some of the big, ugly questions, Donnie, about oh. about the the plight of African American women in rock and roll, because you are yes. a punk rock fan, rock and roll yes. in particular, not soul R and B. Um, you know, I think about the way the great Etta James was shaped and molded and transformed away from what she wanted to be uh, by Chess Records by two mm-hmm. white men running this label. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we follow the line all the way. Um, you said you invented Opal as the heroine you wished had existed. Yeah. Why have uh, black women been so marginalized in aggressive rock and roll music? Oh, that is a, <laughs> that's a huge question. And I, I want to give a shout out here to um, a wonderful nonfiction book. It's called Black Diamond Queens by Maureen Mann. Um, who is a professor at NYU, and she often writes about Black uh, rock. And her latest book, Black Diamond Queens, is about uh, Black women in rock and roll and the contributions that they have made that are often either erased or sort of miscategorized as something else. Uh, I think that miscategorization is like a major, major part of it. Um, When you think about... Um, the contributions yeah. of women like, um, you know, Mary Clayton to, you know, yeah. Gimme Shelter, yeah. um, who really made that song <laughs> what it what it is. And I think like if you ask someone, you know, well, what kind of an artist is Mary Clayton? I don't know that anyone would say she was a, a rock and roll artist, you know, because she does have that sort of soulful sound. But that soulful sound is so influential to, to rock music. It's, it's, it's foundational to, to rock and roll music. I'm so flattered when people say that my book felt very real to them, as if Opal were a real figure. But the sad truth is that I don't know that had a woman like Opal existed, she would have been as popular or as well known as I make her in the book. There are so many just like lost figures along the way, you know, Betty Davis, who I mentioned before. Um, and I think it's just like, it's just a bias, you know? I mean, I think there's a bias against women, first of all, you know? But then you add the extra layer of race on top of that, and it just is not a very welcoming field, I think. And I think it must have been for a lot of black women working in a somewhat lonely field. Um, well, I, th- I think nothing is scarier to the white patriarchy than an angry black woman. Yeah. <laughs> Would you buy that, Tony? <laughs> I do. And I think that a lot of women, you know, don't necessarily even want to like perpetuate that in a way. I think for Opal, she was like, well, hell yeah, I'm mad. I have every right to be angry. There's a lot to be pissed off about, you know, but I don't know that a lot of, you know, a lot of black women in entertainment generally, we have to be very conscious of our image, you know, because there's not that many of us often in, in these fields. And so, you know, when you're meant to sort of when you're put forth as an only one and you're sort of representing so many people, you know, you're very aware of how you're coming across. And Opal's image is a big piece of this story as well. And how it sort of is, you know, not to give anything away, but toward the end of her solo career, how it's sort of twisted and and 
exploited and, um, you know, it's just an extra thing that we have to think about. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right. Have you read Opal and Nev? If you have, I think it will be an incredible discussion in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Donnie Walton, and then we'll talk with one of the inspirations of the Opal character, Mary Clayton. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim DeRogatis, and we're talking with author Donnie Walton about her novel, The Final Revival of Opal and Nev. It's a rock history of sorts about a fictional 1970s duo, uh, Opal Jewell, a black American woman, and Nev Charles, a white Englishman. I know the book was in the works uh, for a while, Donnie. Um, there's a key uh, scene, uh, climax, uh, turning point, uh, involving, uh, you know, uh, Opal and Nev having to share the stage with a band uh, that is straight out of, you know, Southern Rock 101, Capricorn yes. Records, uh, <laughs> flying what they call the stars and bars, right? Of course, what we yeah. would call the uh, symbol of slavery, the Confederate flag, and Opal ain't having none of that. <laughs> uh, not to give away any more than that. Were you writing this before or after Charlottesville? So I was writing it before. I figured so, that. <laughs> yes, I was writing it before. So I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, um, which is, of course, you know, hometown of Leonard Skinnerd. Um, and I actually was zoned to go to the high school that they that they graduated from. I went to a different uh, magnet school. But anyway, so Southern Rock was something that was like always something that I was was very aware of and sort of surrounded by growing up. And the imagery of a lot of these, you know, bands, including Leonard Skinner, it, it included a lot of the Confederate flag. When I was... A little after college, you know, I remember I moved out to Oregon. I was living in the Portland area and I was on a road trip to Seattle and had a flat tire and got towed to a gas station. And this was like the late 90s. And the gas station was festooned with a Confederate flag. And I thought, huh, we're not in the South. (laughs) What, you know, like. What what is this? And it was just such an ominous and like it's it's terrifying, honestly, um, to be confronted with that symbolism and to know what it actually means, even when someone is te- trying to tell you that it's something else. Um, and so that was something that I always sort of um, was grappling with. So you know, I started writing the book in 2013, and I started playing with this idea of the rival band, the Southern Rock Band, probably in 2014. So it was sort of before all the recent conversations. And then in the early days of 2021, you see the Confederate flag in the United States Capitol, something that did not happen during the damn Civil War. The flag of traitors, literal traitors. Yes, yeah. Yeah, paraded through the Capitol. Um, It has been eerie uh, and disconcerting (laughs) to see how relevant some of the things that I'm writing about still are. What about the character of Nev? Is he a stand-in for a particular person or a particular type of person that you run into uh, in the music world? I was sort of thinking about like 
some things about celebrity in general and thinking about images that are constructed and sort of put forth. But, you know, in terms of who he is as an artist, I was thinking about like chameleonic figures, you know, I don't want to like give any spoilers, but, you know, with Nev, it becomes a little questionable, his changing, but it is also a quality that is amazing in rock stars. I was thinking about David Bowie in terms of his changes in sound and in style, but I was also thinking about like, you know, Rod Stewart and sort of moving from like a more hard rock and roll sound to sort of a more like pop friendly, that kind of thing. Um, So there's little pieces of different different artists in there. You know, it's interesting what you said about David Byrne and the, the backing vocalists in his group, uh, that you saw the two of them together. Um, and it's such a trope in some ways of the way the music world operates. I mean, right? The guy with the power is the white guy, and he's able to get this African-American woman to the next step. Or just a woman, period. You see that a lot where women are abused because they're in a position of, mm-hmm. I need this person to help me get to the next level. And were you seeing some of that? Because I was thinking, Opal should be on her own. She shouldn't be doing this uh, with this white guy. She's got enough talent for the both of them to do it on her own. And, and I think that's central to the book. I don't know if you were commenting on that situation at all as some sort of more general framework, because that's really the framework of the music industry for decades. Uh, but I'm curious about why you saw this as a duo instead of her story alone. Well, I think originally I was just thinking about like, what is sort of the weirdest pairing, the most like odd couple kind of thing? Because I just like the idea of playing with the weirdness of it and having two people who are, you know, physically very different and very different in personality, but they do have some like, they do have some core things in common that kind of bring them together. So I was thinking about that, you know, lonely childhoods, um, things like that. And then as I got into it, you know, I was thinking about power dynamics. Um, I was thinking about, you know, I, I wanted to have Opal sort of be initially the more intriguing figure, the, the, the firebrand figure. Um, and then I was asking, well, how long could that have sustained? How long could that have gone on? And how would Nev feel about it? You know? And so as I'm sort of like writing through their rise and their fall, I'm thinking about the different ways that they relate to each other and how each one of them feels about that. You know, I think Opal is very happy to take the lead. Nev, not so much, <laughs> yeah. you know, even though he tries to pretend to be. And when it becomes untenable for him is when things start to kind of fall apart. When it gets too you real. Know? Yeah. Yeah. When it gets too real. Well, it's a hell of a novel. The final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Donnie. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Have you got a favorite rock novel? What do you think of the final revival of Opal and Nev? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. That's a little bit of our next guest, Mary Clayton, singing her iconic part on the Rolling Stones song, Gimme Shelter. 
I mean, holy mackerel. Oh, <laughs> it, it leaves, it leaves uh, it even us speechless. A chill down the spine every time I hear that. Yeah. Uh, it, never, it never goes away. In addition to lending her stellar vocals to that track, Mary spent much of her career singing backup for artists like Ray Charles, Elvis Presley, Ringo Starr, Carol King, and many others, the best of the best. Mary was also featured prominently in the 2013 Oscar-winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom. We can't recommend that highly enough. And in 2014, she was seriously hurt in an accident uh, that put her in the hospital for five months, resulted in the amputation of both legs from the knee down, took years of physical therapy, all of that inspired her and some of her longtime collaborators to make the new album, Beautiful Scars, out on April 9th. Mary, welcome to Sound Opinions. What's going on, fellas? We are excited to be talking to you. Mary, tell us a little bit about how and when you started singing. Let's start at the beginning. I started singing in my dad's church, like three, four or five years old. It always amazed me that I could sing, but everybody in my family could sing. I mean, it was no big thing mm. to me to be singing. And then when you had people like Mahalia Jackson, you sit next to in church on Sunday mornings or like a Sam Cooke, you know, so either Aretha and Pastor Franklin, you know, her dad. So, wow. I mean, it was mm -hmm. always, I was always around music and it was always surrounded in church. So how did that lead? to all of these sessions and how old are you when you start doing sessions uh with elvis with the supreme well and ray charles ray charles ray oh, you were a ray let well first of all i was doing recording uh background sessions i was in the studio one day with a friend my godmom Della reese and i went by to hear her sing and Della said well she can sing too you know so they put me on this little session and I sung, and I sung so loud. And it was with Bobby Darren, and it was a background session for him. And he kept saying, who is that? Who is that loud voice? <laughs> <laughs> and they kept saying, oh, yeah. that's, just, that's just baby sister. And all my friends and family calls me baby sister. Oh, that's just baby sister. That's little Mary. So I back up. to said, back up, baby. And we start again. And... Um, he said, well, now, wait a minute. I'm hearing that same voice again, and they sure are loud. So they said, well, wait a minute. We're going to back her up a little bit more. Well, by the end of the session, I was almost out the door. Mm. I, I had backed up so much. Because you were too loud. I was too loud. backed up so much. But, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about singing with groups or really singing with group groups and how you had to blend and how you had to, like, sound as one. I didn't know anything about that. All I knew is that I sung in church on Sunday mornings. If I could sing in church on Sunday mornings, I could sing with anybody. I can't confess myself that we're really through. Now, who can I count on if I can't count on you? <laughs> I didn't know if I was good. I didn't know if I was bad. I didn't know what I was, but I knew I could sing. What are your memories, uh, Mary, uh, of some of those uh, sessions? What was Elvis like? Elvis was really cool. He was really, really cool. I remember being at this session. We did an album called The World's Fair, something about the World's Fair. And when I got to the studio, it was myself and Pearl Bailey. But this is the thing that got me. When he got to the studio, he had all these security guys and everything. You would have thought that the president was coming through. Uh, can you move? <laughs> yeah, the Memphis can, Mafia, yeah. No, can you, can you move or clear the way for Elvis to come through? Miss Bailey looked at me and I looked at her. I said, what are we clearing the way for? She said, uh, apparently he wants to come through. 
when he when he came yeah. when he came to, because you know he loved gospel music when he came yeah, and, looked, yeah. and looked at me he says are you singing i said yes i am well what is your name and i told him my name you know and uh he says oh i've heard i've heard of you before i said you have where he says well you did some records for for capital for this company we were capital records i said yeah mm -hmm. i did he said boy you can really sing I said, oh, thank you. And we went on into the session, you know, and before I knew it, I had done my part. I watched Miss Baby do her part, and then Elvis did his part. And of course, I was going to stay fat. When mommy's girl to them, they never part again, but live forever happily, like you and me. And then in 1970, he sent me a Christmas postcard. Hmm. Yeah, I'll never forget that. I said, wow. Yeah. This, this is from Elvis, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about what about being on stage as one of the Raylettes behind uh, the great Ray Charles? Was that a thrill? The greatest musical time in my life. Mm. In, in my life, Billy Preston. Billy calls me one day. And he said, "Drop everything. You got to come and sing for Ray." And I said, "Ray, who?" He said, Ray Charles, <laughs> come to the RPM building. He gave me that. He said, put on the cutest thing you have and smell good. I said, not like I don't smell good, Bill. He said, no, you got to look extra cute. You're coming for Ray Charles. So I meet Billy at his studio. And we, we walk in. And I see this guy up and down the hall. And, I, and, and he's just bouncing around and saying, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> so I'm thinking... Okay, if he's beeping, apparently he's letting people know he's coming. Get out of my way. We got in the studio, <laughs> and Billy said, come on, sing this for Ray. So I sung, because Billy and I have been working together from kids, you know. So he knew what I was going to sing and when I was going to sing. What I, so I started to sing, and Ray started to, to bouncing around and shaking his head, as he would do. And uh, mm -hmm. before I left that day, I had a tour deal to take to my parents to check out. Uh -huh. And he said, we'd love to have you on the tour. We'd love. Billy's coming. And Billy said, well, I don't know. I have to ask my mother. So Billy and I hatched a plan. He said, now, listen, I'm going to tell my mom that your mother's going to let you go. And you tell your mother, <laughs> you tell your mom, you tell Miss Eva, you tell Miss Eva that, that um, my mom is going to let me go. You know, and then that way, you know, please, come on. Yeah, we hatched, mm -hmm. we hatched up that story, and they laughed at us later on in the years. They laughed. They said, "You guys really think we? You, you really thought we believed that?" <laughs> <laughs> but they let you go. They let us go. We watched, watched out for each other, you know, and um, everything really turned out good for us. We didn't have any problems at I'll all. I'll say. <laughs> Was there ever instances where you would say no to someone, or were you pretty much taking if, if somebody wants me, I'll be there? How did how, what was your approach to to singing vocals? Well, background vocals, I loved singing background vocals, and I especially loved singing background vocals with my friends like uh, Clyde King, who I grew up with, and Vanetta Fields, Shirley Matthews, Brenda Holloway, Patrice Holloway, Gloria Jones, Edna Wright. You know, mm -hmm. but all of these singers, I just love. They call and say, hey, what you doing? I'll pick you up on the way. And, and whoever would be standing outside and jump in the car, we'd run to the studio. What are you wearing? Well, I'm wearing the tightest jeans I have. 
well, what color is your top going to be? And they couldn't, they couldn't wait for the girls to get to the studio. They would oh, the girls are here. The girls are here. <laughs> the girls are here. Yeah. You know, so we would just always have a great time. And for no other reason, we get a chance to see each other and get a chance to sing together. Yeah, and that came across in 20 Feet from Stardom, the sort of uh, supportive uh, sorority That's right. of, uh, of singers helping each other. I got to ask you, Mary, about uh, you and Clyde sing backing vocals on Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama. Oh, my God. As a Southern girl, I'm wondering what what that that meant to you. Uh, you know, I, I think it was a different time, and uh, you know, we've interviewed uh, fellow journalists who've who've uh, written extensively about Skinner, and you know, it didn't seem like they were the wrong kind of Southerner. On the other hand, there's Confederate flags around, you know, and stuff like that. And what did it mean to you to sing on that song? Well, I know my mother didn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because yeah. that really meant something to her and my family. And uh, it really meant something to me. But um, Clyde is the one who called me for that record date. Baby, she said, there's a group called Leonard Skinnerd. I said, oh, really? And um, <laughs> first of all, I never heard a name like that before. I said, well, that's, that's, <laughs> that's cool. And she said, well, they're going to be doing a session. They're doing this song called Sweet Home Alabama. I said, oh, honey, no. I'm not doing anybody's Ala nor their Bama for anybody. <laughs> She's not doing that, ladies and gentlemen. She's not doing that. So she said, girl, come on. She said, you know, we don't, we can't, we can't carry signs. We can't protest. You know, if you get in a line to do any kind of protesting the way you are, you, you know, you would end up in jail because somebody hit you. You go hit them back. I said, that's right. She said, the only voice we have is the music. Why don't we do it through the music? So that's the only reason why. Because, see, at that time, you had racism so thick. We had just lost our leader, uh, Dr. King. We had lost yeah. Bobby Kennedy. We had lost John Kennedy. We had lost um, uh, all the black leader, all of our black leaders. They had, you know, they had done in. You know, mm-hmm. so when 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 that happened, I was like, we were like stunned and we were like numb to what had transpired. You got you got you got racism from the police. You got the Vietnam War going on. You got so much going on, you know, mm-hmm. so for someone to tell you, you we would love for you to say Sweet Home Alabama. I said, well, I tell you what, Clyde, I said, I'm going to sing it, but I'm not going to like it. She says, well, baby sister, you don't have to like it. She said, but this could be our protest. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. So I spoke to my husband about it. And Curtis, my husband was a, a brilliant jazz musician. He was Ray Charles's musical director. And I mm-hmm, met married mm-hmm. him from Ray's orchestra. And we were married 32 years, knew each other 35. And I said, Curtis, they want us to sing some, some SH called Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> and, he, and he was always the voice of reason you know he was like well mary you know and then he went to the same thing you know you can't carry a sign because your mouth would get you in so much trouble you wouldn't be a great protester he said so why don't you do it through the music he says sing mm. it and sing it with every ounce of the vigor 
and, and anything that you can muster up to sing it, sing it. He said, guess what? It's going to do you well later on in life. Very wise hmm. man. Very wise, hmm. wise man. I said, I don't really care about what it's going to do in life. What I'm caring about is what it's going to do in this session that I'm getting ready to go and say, I'm caring about how am I, I'm, how am I going to feel with working people with Confederate flags on their albums? And I've got to look at, you know, you're looking at this and you're looking at the guys and I didn't want to judge them. But I mean, if you say standing in front of Confederate flags singing, there's something about that. You know, yeah. What does that say yeah. about you as a person and as an artist? You know, people think that that's something that came up recently, but it was always there. Yeah. It was always offensive. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but 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 they were were they okay and were you proud then of that? Proud of the your performance. Oh, I was Oh, we kicked behind and took names now. Yeah, yeah, I know it sounds great. <laughs> oh, we yeah. kicked behind and took very a lot of names, but um it was because of that 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 spirit that was inside of us. To like, yeah. sweet home I was, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. That's what that was about. That's probably why it sounds so good, you know. Yeah, you were answering them. So you must have got a little chuckle when Neil Young puts out Southern Man. Oh, yeah. And then I then I recorded Southern Man. Yeah, you did your own version you of that song. You did your own version. That's yes. a little inside footnote rock history inside reference. Without, yeah. without a smile on my face, I'd stand and sing that, honey. Because I knew mm. what that was about. <laughs> yes. Southern man, you better keep your head. Don't forget what your good book said. Southern change is gonna come at last. Now you cross it, a burning fast. When we return, Mary tells the story of singing on the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter and talks about her new solo album. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking with the amazing singer, Mary Clayton. One story we couldn't wait to hear was about her legendary performance on the Stones' track, Gimme Shelter. And I asked her what was going through her mind when she got the late night phone call to come to the studio. Well, what was going on in my head was like, I really don't want to go and do this. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't want to get, you know, I had put on my beautiful pink silk pajamas, honey, and was lotioning my hands. <laughs> you know, rolled my hair and my hair was, was, was gorgeous. And I said, well, I'll put this scarf on and phone rings this Jack mm. Nietzsche. Hi, Mary. I said, oh, Lord, <laughs> it's Jack. I said, oh, Lord, yeah. what, what, what's happening, Jack? Yeah. He said, you know, we've got these guys in town. So my husband heard me talking, and he takes the phone. He said, wait, give me this phone. Who is this? I said, Jack Nietzsche. And Curtis put his head up in the air. He said, oh, Lord, it must be something about music. I said, it is. So Jack said, Curtis, you know, this is going to be something really special for Mary. We won't need it for but about an hour. Is, is it okay if she comes? We we got a car sitting down in front of your house right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I was in the door in this big old limousine sitting down in front of the house. I said, I don't want to go and do so. Yeah, Mary, again, the voice of reason. Curtis said, baby, it won't take you long. He said, you know, once you get it, it's, it's done. So yeah. uh, in and out. He said, in so and, he out. and Jack said, he said, Curtis, it's going to be a great thing for Mary later on in her career. 
He said, well, man, I tell you, she's not going to stay any longer than an hour and a half. That's it. Mm-hmm. No longer than an hour and a half. He says, okay, then I'll be there. I'll be waiting for her at the front door. So I get there and I walk in. Jack's at the front. And um, I see Keith and Mick uh, coming from the back door in the studio, but coming through the studio towards me, walking wild. Well, you know what they had been doing. Yeah. From, <laughs> coming out of the back. So um, uh, they say to me, are you married? I said, yes, I'm married. I said, well, what do you want me to sing, honey? Because it's late. You know, and I had a yeah, good, get, I had, get to it. Let's yeah, get to I work. Had, yeah, let's cut to the chase and let's do what we got to do. I said, you know, I said, you see this belly? I said, I got to go put it to bed. So um, <laughs> he says, he says, okay, so Keith, who I love dearly, he said, well, darling, this is the part. So he sings the part to me. I said, well, play the track. I'll, I'll hear the track from out here. I'm not going to the studio to listen. Just play the track from inside. They play the track and, and we're doing war children just a shot away just a shot away so we got that part I said is that what you want they said oh yes that's wonderful that's wonderful so then they get to Rape murder. So Mick and Keith comes out in the studio. I said, Dolly, we need you to put this part on. I said, honey, I'm here by myself. I said, I'm not mm-hmm. about to say any rape nor murder with anybody up in here. This, this is not going to happen about the rape and the murder. Until they told me the gist of the song. You know, they had picked out parts, but I had to hear the whole song. So yeah. they told me what the gist was of the song. I, um, I said, oh, okay, that's cool. Right. So right, it was right. it was war children, period. It was just a shout away. So when I got yeah. the gist of that song and they start playing the track, it's like I bought all my ancestors with me. I bought mm-hmm. I bought my mother, my, my grandmother. I bought um, my great grandmother. I bought my father. Everybody had, had, who I had known during my life that had been kind to me, always bring them with me. You know, so of the love of all those ancestors was written because it was like I was crying out, help. You know, it's just mm-hmm, yeah, if, if yeah. we don't really get it together here, we all gonna be dead. It's just a shot away. And it's like something took me over. It just took over my being, you know, and I'm screaming to the top of my voice and I'm just singing. And uh, some kind of way my voice cracked. And they said, oh, no, the crack. Can you leave the crack in? I said, well, I didn't mean for the crack. <laughs> I didn't, they said, oh, well, just leave the crack in. I said, honey, I don't know if it's going to crack again. I hope you got that one. So yeah. I did it again. I did it maybe three times, two or three times. And they were hooting and hollering and carrying on and Oh my God! If you if you hear the single version of just the vocal, you can hear Mick and Keith and the guys in the studio just hollering and hooting. I'm gonna give you one for safety, and I'm out. 
So I yeah, they're, 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 they're celebrating. Oh, no. I gave her one for safety, and while they were hooping and hollering, I was waving goodbye. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what, when you think about 90 minutes, that completely changes your life yes. and your stature in, in the business. But also, I would say, uh, you know, is if you had to choose one vocal of the 60s that was resonant of the pain oh, and the yeah. hope and the community of black America, but also everyone who was against the violence. I mean, then, you know, boom, 90 minutes. And, and she gave it to us. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, and, and, and Mary, I got to ask you about that that performance. OK, so you're they wake you up. You're in bed, you're pregnant, you're tired, you don't want to be there, you sing your heart out. It's a performance of a lifetime. When you go home after that, do you fall like right to sleep was just another job? <laughs> or are you like up for three days going, holy crap, I knocked the hell out of that song? You know, I mean, I'm just curious about your, your mental frame of mind when you, when you do something like that. Well, uh, my mental frame of mind was, I'm going to sleep, I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah, that's really. A, you were able to, to to poop out. I wanted to get back to my warm spot. I didn't care if I had some give me shelter, give me helter. I wanted to <laughs> get back into my warm spot next to my man and snuggle down and go see. Because I was really, when you sing a song like that, you know, that takes something out of you. You yeah, know, sure. Yeah. And I looked up at one period and my eyes were just watering, you know. Hmm. It was just my eyes was just, my nose was running a little bit. I remember the second engineer came out to bring me Kleenex, you know, because my eye, I guess he saw my eyes were watering and my nose was starting to run because I kept doing that, you know. Hmm. He said, You okay, Miss Clayton? I said, Yeah, I think I'm all right. He says, Well, you may need these Kleenex. He bought me a box of Kleenex. But I noticed I didn't know I was crying. I didn't know that I was tearing up. Oh wow. But it really hmm. touched wow. my it touched my spirit. So it touched my yeah. spirit. You know, yeah, it just yeah. it, it just caused me to uh, to tear up. She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be made whole. She kept on crying all over, all over, So tell us about beautiful scars, a stunningly powerful gospel record. Produced by the legendary, my my godfather in uh, this thing called music, my Uncle Lou Adler, mm-hmm. affectionately known as Uncle Lou. No one can call him that but me. <laughs> <laughs> Baby sister can call him Uncle yeah, Lou. Let's gotcha. get that straight right now. Well, I was in the hospital. He was with me through the entire situation. He was there. He was calling every day, speaking to the doctors. He was like my father, basically. So before I knew it, I was being ushered out of the hospital in a couple of days. So I had been home for about uh, three, four months. He says, well, Mary, how are you feeling? I said, I'm feeling pretty good. But we talk every day, two or three times a day for months and months. Mm-hmm. months. He, said, well, wow. you know, he said, well, you know, you got to sing again. I said, excuse me. I said, Lou, I want everything in the entire world. I mean, I don't need to win. I don't need to sing. He said, oh, yes, you got to sing again. Got to sing again. A few months went by. He says, well, what do you think? I said, first of all, we have to get songs. I haven't written anything. I haven't been musically inclined at all. He said, mm-hmm. but Mary, it's in you. You know, you, you, everything you need is inside of you, which he was right. Mm-hmm. So um, he says, I tell you what, call Terry. So we called Terry Young. And Terry says, oh, yeah. he calls me Sister Mary. Sister Mary, I've got a few songs you need to hear. Not, <laughs> not Maya. I, I 
kind of think that they one day they'll tell me the truth about this. I kind of think they were in cahoots together. Yeah, they were plotting. Yeah. They were plotting. He says, yeah. I, I'm coming over. Not may I come over. I'm coming over. So the next day, Terry comes, you know, real clean. He play these tracks to me. And oh, my God, they stirred my soul. Mm. Lou loved it. He loved it. He said, OK, Mary, what are we going to do? He says, well, we need to get in the studio. I said, really? He said, yeah, we need to get in the studio. So we got in. Everything is set. Well, I love, I love Mary, your husband, Curtis, uh, Amy. He passed in, in 2002, but uh, you were able to incorporate one of his solos. So it's, it's completely like your life, your family, your love. Yes, but, but it wasn't me. That was the infamous Uncle Lou. I was wondering why after I did my vocal, he just turned the song off and we went to something else because he was thinking. He said to me, he says, Mary, who are we going to get to do a solo? They mean a solo right here. I said, well, you know, that was Curtis's part. That's what Curtis did, his solo. So mm. we just left it alone. Not mm. knowing that he was plotting. He said, I, I want you guys to listen to this song I'm sending over. So we didn't know what it was. So we put it on. And it was song for you. And when it came to the solo, Curtis started to play. He had pulled, lifted it from the Mary Clayton album and put it on this project. That is beautiful. And man, listen, we were just through. We were just, we were just, our hearts were just in our stomach. It was just so beautiful and so wonderful. Well, Beautiful Scars is is a hell of an album. Thank Uh, you, baby. Congratulations and your career. You have always been an inspiration and it was a joy talking to you. Thank you so, so much. You guys be well. That wraps up our conversation with singer Mary Clayton. And as always, you can share your opinions by leaving us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are once again going to dig deep for another batch of buried treasures, new music that you cannot live without, in our opinion. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our intern, Sol Delgadillo.